At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 592nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from the Urban Farm, and I am with Bill McDormand. Bill, what's the name of your farm? Well, when we were growing flowers, we called it Anjali. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. very good. Yeah, uh, lately it's just been home. Well, there you go. <laughs> home farm. Bill is the, all right, you're not the executive director anymore. You're the co-founder. Can we call you co-founder of Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance? Well, I'm, I'd am i like to fade into the background. I Actually, what I'm doing is teaching and I help with uh, the website. Cool, cool. And for those of you who are on live, if you could put your questions in the Q and A section, that would be better because I can't I can't have a conversation with Bill and monitor the chat section all along the way. And if you are listening to this on our podcast, usually about the third Saturday, I'm sorry, the third Tuesday of the month, we do a live seed chat, so you can attend live or listen to the podcast at urbanfarmpodcast.com. We usually put that out the next month. So tonight's Umbles class will be. Uh, showing up next month in the podcast. So, all right, Bill, let's start with the obvious question. What's an umbel? Umbrella. Oh, so the what the flowers look like. Yeah, it goes back to trying to understand nature. And so <laughs> if you stare at it long enough, patterns start to emerge. Mm-hmm. And and so it wasn't long before a guy named Linnaeus came along, mm, right? And tried to write down and standardize all the patterns he was seeing in plants. Mm-hmm. And he found out that you know since leaves all look alike, if you're really going to tell plants apart, you got to go for the flowers. That's mm-hmm. where all the all the differences are. And mm-hmm. so to uh, answer the question in a really short manner, umble is one of the descriptions for the shape of a flower. And so that became, and it turns out that evolutionarily, they share a lot of things that nature and its march to complexify, I'll call it, mm-hmm. you know, from one cell into all the nature that we see around us, animals and plants and all the kingdoms. Um, there were certain periods where it learned to adapt to certain things in certain environments. And an umble or umbrella shaped flower was one of those for a while. And so Normally, not all the time, but many of the umbels are related to each other in other ways and not just their flower shape. So is carrot an umbel? Carrot is an umbel. In fact, they used to call it the umbeliferia family when I was Mm -hmm. taking uh, botany way back. It was named after that flower shape. Now they call it Fabiaceae. No, it's not Fabiaceae. Those are the, I'm trying to uh, think of the, uh, and they're not the Asteraceae. 
I'll think of the name of the what they've what they've done is standardized the plant nomenclature now to name the family after the largest genus of plants. It's Apiacea. Oh, interesting. Excuse me. And so um, that's oh, what yeah, they call that's it these what, days. Yeah, Deb. Both Deb and Claudia shouted out in the chat. Oh, the Apiacea. There, there you go. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, that's it's what, been a long day. It, all the help we can get. Thank you. Right. This is what I love about our community and people that show up around here. We're just we're in this together, having a great time. So, what about them? Well, generally, there's a couple of things. One is that it's thought that they have that shape in order to attract insects. In other right. words, they set the table. It's a big, round, flat table. You've seen carrot flowers. Mm-hmm where it makes it easy for them to come in and land and get the pollen and to cross-pollinate. And in fact, most of the flowers in the APACA, and you know, you never say never, you never say all in anything right. in nature, most of them are um, cross-pollinating in some, in some way. And so that you need, they need insects to come in and get pollen and take it to other flowers. Mm-hmm. Now, this whole family, the APACA, or at least many of them are, will self-pollinate also oh, nice. as, as uh, insects go from flower to flower, mm-hmm. but they'll also then take that pollen to other flowers. And so they've got a pretty good system there. And so in that, so umbels and, and onions, are onions umbels? Well, the flower shape of an onion is an umbel, mm-hmm. it, in a sense. Now, yeah, though the onion flowers actually even get more spherical. Right, as do right? garlic has big puffy flowers. Right. And so it's more like, yeah, if you had a 360-degree umbrella. It's an umbrella in the sense that you've got a, a major stem coming up and it branches out, and then it branches off of those branches. Mm-hmm. Well, I had something very interesting happen at the urban farm. I've been growing garlic here for, oh my God, a decade or more. And I grow it in a specific part of my yard. Mm-hmm. And I noticed a couple of years ago, a garlic plant that came up across the driveway where I've never planted garlic. Mm-hmm. And that was, I don't know, three years ago. Now there are three or four of them. So that one had to come from a seed. And, and I don't normally think of garlic growing from seed you grow garlic from cloves right that's how you grow garlic if you want to make sure that you get the same garlic that you had when you plant it mm-hmm. in other words it's vegetative propagation but um it's a wily plant it not only produces seeds and that's what you know all flowers produce seeds right so those umbels, you know if they're pollinated and cross-pollinated enough and they have the right conditions They'll produce seeds, but garlic in between will produce scapes and oh, produce are those, those are those, yeah. those little things that are around the. Uh, oh yeah, and then the out of those come bulbiles, which are actually little garlics, and so you can plant those. You know, if you plant the little bulbiles, you won't get a big bulb of garlic mm-hmm. that year. You'll just get one clove, and then you could take that one clove the next year and plant it the way you normally do your clothes and get big bulbs. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there's all sorts of little tricks. You know, in fact, people that are growing garlic for seed, if you really want, if they're playing with garlic, and it is, it can be complex because when you plant a garlic seed, you may be getting genetics from a bunch of different parents that you don't know about. You may get something totally different. So you have to start to pay attention. And that's the kind of stuff we teach in our seed schools. That's the kind of attention we want to 
you know, that's adventure. You know, now we're getting excited about stuff. And so if you want really great seed, you'll actually pick off those bulb bottles before they, you know, why waste energy on that? You want all the energy to go into the flower. Got it. So, and you mentioned seed school. We do a, uh, through Urban Farm U and through Bill McDormand, we do a seed school online. So you can find out about that at seedschoolonline.com if you're interested in that. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not a great um, humble or onion seed saver. You know, I've done it and mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by the whole family. And it's a very promiscuous one. There's lots of off types and crosses that you hear about. Mm -hmm. Someone sent me seeds for what he called garlic grass Ooh. from Uzbekistan or somewhere. And it was an onion variety that normally got three or four inches tall. It was like garlic chives. Right. Kind of as a flat leafed. And it was a really strong garlic flavor in it, though. Oh, wow. You know, so where do you know? I mean, it's sort of like white bread and white potatoes. You know, we could we go, oh, we've got garlic and we've got onions. Oh, we even have purple onions. And that just doesn't even scrape the surface of the diversity that's in there if somebody really wanted to play around. Yeah. So people are, I, I, can you buy garlic seed? I know we can buy onion seed because we have it at the greatamericanseedup.org. You know, yeah, you almost never see it. And what the, so the word that comes with it is true seed. <laughs> ah. And whenever you hear the word true in a garden, you've got it like, you know, this is not where we study philosophy, you know, and that's a word that came out of Plato and, and the ideals. And so it's really hard to find true in a garden. But they say they call it true seed because it means that somebody has paid attention and grown it out enough and um, selected out maybe deleterious recessives or things that they don't want long enough that they can have an understanding that when they plant that seed, they're going to get the same kind of garlic every time. So deleterious recessives? Yeah, don't you love what, that? What on earth is that? <laughs> so that's why I just want everybody to know out there, we've got a bunch of people listening. Um, the reason we do these chats is so that I can learn stuff. Yeah, like right. what is a deleterious recessive? Well, isn't that, that's what one political party calls the other party when it's uh, out of power. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, you know, so it's a, you know, a little bit of Mendelian genetics. There's a dominant and a recessive mm -hmm. trait at each location. And dominants are dominant. If they're there, if there's a dominant trait there, it will express whether that's the color purple in peas or whatever else it is. And we think nobody knows exactly. And there's probably geneticists, maybe even somebody on the call that knows better than I do that could explain it. But nature tends to favor those dominants. That's why they're dominant, that in their evolutionary lust you know, to survive and to do well, that these are the traits that they favor. And so recessives are, you know, kind of shunted to the side and they don't express anymore. Well, if there's sexual reproduction, say between two onions, mm -hmm. and it just happens at the roll of the dice that instead of a dominant and a recessive and see that dominant trait being in your garlic, you get a recessive and a recessive at that location because of sexual reproduction. Mm -hmm. then that recessive will express itself. 
And that's what that's the mechanism by which you get stuff you don't eat you didn't even know you had. It was hidden underneath the dominant in the variety that you had. And so we generally think of those as deleterious. They're not, you know, they're not as good. They're, they're not where we want to go. That they're they're recessive for a reason. Now that's not always the case. And sometimes we want those. You know, that for some reason in another place, it was recessive to have a certain disease resistance or certain color or shape that now we really want. And so, you know, as plant explorers, you know, crossing things and, and dehybridizing and getting all these recessives to come out again is actually big fun and big adventure yeah. and can be. But but that's what a deleterious recessive is. And so what you would do then is if you grew out a line of garlics, 100 garlics, and you saw some of them say that they were really small or they're not the the right color or they were really hard or something that you didn't like because of this recessive expression you would just make sure you didn't save seeds from those again you would only save ones this mm. either the bulbs and or the seeds from the ones you wanted and that's how you select out for deleterious recessives so you know i do my fruit tree program every right year, right urban farm fruit tree program and most fruit trees that we get are grafted so they right. take they take a cutting off of a KD apricot and graft right. it on a rootstock right. so that we get KD apricots every single time. Right, exactly. Genetically duplicate. So basically what you're telling me is when we plant garlic or onions from a bulb, we're getting a genetic duplicate of the parents. Right. You know, there, it's not perfect duplicate because there's always um, genetic mistakes that happen. You know, and so, so things can be slightly different. Also, we know through epigenetics oh, yeah. that some of what the plant is expressing in its environment can be controlled even in one year. In other words, if there's hot, dry, say it's 130 next summer and all your garlic dies in Phoenix, except for three or four bulbs, they figured out how to change themselves enough to make it through that. And they can actually pass on some of that resistance to heat and drought to their offspring in seeds if you save those seeds. Mm -hmm. Wow. All right. But if I save the bulb, it's not necessarily... Well, I, well if I don't know. That's a really great question. I, yeah. that's, that's getting beyond me. But anyway, that's the, that's the story. You're getting, you're right when you say the short answer is, yeah, I'm getting a, a genetic duplicate. Yeah. Wow. You know? All right. So, um, and so, and so in the sense you're fruit tree farming still. Right. You know, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. What do they say? 80% of the avocados grown in the United States all came from one tree. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Haas avocados. Mm -hmm. And it was a tree his wife almost made him throw away. She didn't like it. It was in their backyard in San Diego. And he's going, no, no, honey, I think this is, I think this one's going to be, I like these avocados. <laughs> wow. And that's what everybody should do. This is my little reminder for all you new plant explorers and breeders is whenever you see an off type, whenever you see something that's not normal, you know, don't necessarily, you know, I mean, our, we're taught to say, oh, no, that's not true. That's not breeding true. You know, like there's something wrong with it. Let's learn to appreciate and observe it for what it is. And it might be a Haas avocado. You never know. Right. Well, there you go. So what is the best way? Well, all right, let's actually go someplace else. Name umbels. So we've got carrots, we've got onions, we've got garlic. You know, in the garden, people do leeks Hemlock, and shallots. Leeks and shallots. Some, uh, Claudia says yeah. 
Yeah, and you get both, um, and commonly in gardens now are both chives and garlic chives. Garlic mm-hmm. chives are actually in the leek side of things instead of the, the onion side of things. but They all taste oniony and garlicky to me. Well, they do, and it's a sulfur compound. Ah. And, you know, if you find something in the wild that has that flavor, mm-hmm. it's in the same family. Yeah. Usually, there's nothing in the mountain, the northern part of the mountain west where I grew up that mimics that flavor. So it's either a wild garlic, wild onion, whatever you want to call it, common name, but it's yeah. there. And those are the same sulfur compounds. Wow. Deb says parsley, dill. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Carrots. parsley and dill, carrots. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these, interestingly enough, are growing wild in my yard now. I have, well, so what you're saying is that they're reseeding themselves. Yeah. They're taking care of themselves. Yeah. Right. I, yeah, I, so my yard, is the urban farm, is a third of an acre in north central Phoenix. It's 80 feet wide and 160 feet deep. And I have been practicing permaculture here since 1991. Wow, that's 30 years ago. Wow. Okay. And it just occurred to me just this moment. And <laughs> one of the things that I've done for at least two decades for sure for the last 15 years since I met you, is planted open pollinated seeds and I let things go to seed. And rather than collecting the seeds, I just let things go to seed and let them plant themselves. In fact, I was walking through the front lawn the other day and cilantro was coming up in the front lawn and carrots I have in the front lawn and uh, parsley and lettuce I have growing just in the front lawn. In fact, interestingly enough, last year, about a year ago, I walked across the street and in the neighbor's front yard across the street was a lettuce growing. So that's one of the ways that I've let nature be in my yard is I've designed the urban farm. It's a food forest. So I let it do what nature does. Well, that just makes a lot of sense if you're lazy. <laughs> right? Well, I definitely am a lazy gardener. Yeah, I love that story about Bill Mollison when a journalist from America went down to visit the father of permaculture, right, yeah. in Australia. And she kind of had coordinates to where his his famous, you know, farm was. And uh, she couldn't find it. So she finally got out of her car and she thought she was in the right place. She went through a fence and she cut through the brush and she was in the understory and, and finally walked out into this little open place. And there's a little kind of house there, two stories. And actually Larry Santoya was there at the time. He was staying with Bill Mollison and he told me this story. And this woman walks into the yard and says, I'm looking, he goes, what are you doing here? And she says, I'm looking for Bill Mollison's, you know, famous fireman. He just smiled and said, you just walked through it. (laughs) (laughs) It was just, Natural, you know, um, he, that's exactly what he was doing is letting it decide as much as he could. And I think that's the secret, isn't it? Learning when to intervene and to put your energy and learn. And that's what we're learning as seed savers now is learning not to do that for some abstract ideas about true or, or complicated rules, you mm-hmm. know, to avoid inbred depression or to avoid unwanted cross-pollination, if we can just eat everything that we get anyway, you know, and it, it might develop something new. I mean, we can be adventurous now. We don't have to pay attention to the rules for industrial agriculture or for the things we grew up. We get to start over. And I think that's what the 
philosophy of permaculture largely do. You know, and to give and to pay homage, right? Permaculture is just what um, land-based and indigenous peoples have done right. since time immemorial. I mean, this were if this was privileged white guy late to the party coming up with his own work because he's so alienated from the other cultures on the planet. But now we're that's starting to resolve itself anyway. And so no matter what you call it, just being more observant and learning oh. how to insert yourself at just that point where you can make a huge difference, you know, and still have time to enjoy, Yeah, you know, so you don't get all warlike, like so many people are just depressed and angry and <laughs> man. So there, there's several things that I kind of want to point out of what you just said. First of all, for me in permaculture, I like to call permaculture the art and science of working with nature. Number one, number two, and number three on my list of the first and second and third thing to do in permaculture is observe. Yeah, exactly. Spend time observing. Right. Pay attention to what's going on in your space. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so yeah. Th thanks for that. And uh, the other thing is that, uh, you know, you been mentioned Bill Mollison and uh, created an amazing thing with the help of David Holmgren. Right. And, you know, that really didn't come to light until much later on in the process of permaculture. But if you're interested in hearing from a co-creator co of permaculture, David Holmgren, if you go to uh, urbanfarmpodcast.com and type in David Holmgren, I actually got him for three podcasts. Wow. I got yeah. to listen to him. Yeah. I forgot about that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was an amazing, amazing. Well, these history. guys are, you know, this they're here. Yeah. And, and you know what makes guys like David Holmgren so special for me? Mm. You know, they're obviously really smart people. And right. it's always, you know, and and we and I like to learn. So it's nice to be around people like that. But what I've noticed about good permaculturists now is that through their experience, through the decades for him, he practices it. Oh, yeah. So when he walks into a landscape now, he sees more. Oh, yeah. Patterns and whatever. I had a I had a uh, permaculturist come on our property and I'd taken the class and, you know, I want to do it and I want to improve my property. And we made a lot of improvements. And then Josh from up in Flagstaff came on mm -hmm. the property one time and he was he was doing it full time. That was his job. And he could just he, it was just shameful how much I had not seen <laughs> even after 10 years on my own property. You right. Know? Yeah. Right. That's what I'm talking about. There's there's a deep, you know, experiential practice that comes through it. And it isn't that what the masters have taught us in every field. Right. It's, it just takes practice. Well, I know for me, I mean, like I said, I've been studying permaculture now for 30 years. And I when I walk onto a property, we're in the desert here. Right. Very drought, you know, very drought oriented. I notice the water flows. It's just an automatic thing for me. Right. Yeah. I don't even have to look for them anymore. Right. It just, you know, if there's water right. been running on this property right. at all, I see it. Right. Just because I've been observing for so long. Well, and then think about what it's like to have multi-generational practice. Mm. In other words, wouldn't it be nice to have white-haired grandparents and elders that were permaculture? I mean, Holmgren's starting to get there, right? Yeah. <laughs> Mollison passed away, but I mean, multi-generation. And that's what the, our indigenous communities have. Yeah, That's why they're so special. Yeah. And if you think about epigenetics, they're actually able to pass on some of their sensitivity, at least theoretically, around mm. these, this kind of observation patterns to their kids and their grandkids. 
That's what we're missing. And that's what we really have to start to try to rebuild if we're going to be intelligent humans, you know, that, that really have a culture that thrives. I, that I believe. And so, you know, and we're just hackers learning how to save (laughs) seeds again. You know, our generation throws away 90% of them, you know, and we wake up and go, what were we thinking? 90% of all the diversity in all the crops. But then, you know, all we can do is say, wow, we get to do it now. We get to grow all that back. Yeah. And we get to start this multi-generational sense of place and honoring where we are and the nature that nurtures us. Well, and a piece of that, so uh, the how-to of that is letting things go to seed in your landscape and just let them seed out. Yeah. Heidi said to me last night or Sunday, we were out in the front yard and she said, Greg, this is the third year we've had parsley, uh, I'm sorry, celery growing in our front yard and we haven't planted it. It just, again, it, I just we just let it go to seed. So yeah, it's just in a lot of ways, it's let nature be. Right. But there's a question in uh, the Q&A about what happens if you get really aggressive plants in your kids, yes. kitchen garden, like dill or parsley mm-hmm. that start to take over. And I think we both just alluded to this is that um, we're here and we can intervene and learning where to intervene. Yeah. Is you know, and I think I I know I've done this. I've wiped out way too much, even gotten angry. You know, you go to war. I'm <laughs> in a bit of that sphere now with gophers. You know, oh I yeah, want to, but you know, there's a balance there somewhere, and that's what I mean. I don't have a white-haired, you know, indigenous seed master to ask about your your parsley and dill, but maybe there's an, a corollary to the three sisters or some stories that might be able to help you. You know, it just, I don't know. Those are really, those, that's the gardening adventure for you in your place. And the the parsley and dill I have in my yard, my dill is not aggressive enough. I wish it was. I wish it was everywhere. Um, Parsley can come back year after year, but I'm just not having those problems. And so I have different ones and that it's up for me to learn and and, uh, control those. Well, and the, the interesting thing is parsley and dill is not invasive. Well, it can seem that way, you know. I mean, it yeah, can. Yeah, but it's, yeah. Here's, the th- here's the thing with like Bermuda grass. Yeah, well, that, pull, there, it's relative. Bermuda, you can't pull Bermuda grass out. You have to dig it out and you have to stay on top of it. It's an on top of thing or it gets out of control. Right. But with parsley and dill, I mean, I could see you just going, you know, through your garden and weeding it out of there. And, and making pickles. <laughs> there you go, and making pickles. So that was from Deb Paulson. She said uh, she was uh, having us you know, kind of review that. Uh, Sheila says, are there any in-depth courses on seed saving after the seven module seed school program? So you guys do through Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, you guys do a teacher training, right? That's, yeah, we're doing, yeah, we're doing one right now. We're in our third week. It's a 10 week course, two Mm -hmm. hours a week. You know, as soon as COVID lets us, we'll go back to doing those live again. Mm-hmm. And that's so that's more advanced. You know, here's if you want to just be a great seed saver, here's okay, a couple well, of things. To, Let me right. guess. Just go do it. Well, yeah. And <laughs> and so that's what I was going to say in a sense. But it is different in every location. Mm-hmm. Right. So to take a, a universal course to learn how to be a great seed saver, boy, that would take lifetimes. But to yeah. be a great seed saver in a certain location with the plants that grow and thrive in that location with the selections you want to make, that is a path worth pursuing. And so what I suggest is uh, looking for one of the on-site 
seed saving courses that are starting to pop up and mm -hmm. it's really been wonderful to see new seed schools come up so you know i think the best one that i've been to and have heard about this doesn't mean it's the only one don tippings at oh, siskiyou yeah. seeds and you can uh, go to their website and look but he does twice a year or was doing twice or three times a year and he's broken his up into three or four day uh, programs now that are seasonal so you can go out there three times and take part in the whole seed planting, harvesting, cleaning ritual in the different seasons that it takes. And you actually do the work in that place. So if you're in the Northwest, that's incredible. And I went up there just to see, you know, how it was organized or whatever. And I learned a lot. Um, Casey O'Leary's had a course in Boise, Idaho with her uh, CRS with the Snake River Seed Co-op. You know, Rowan White used to do one for Sierra Seed Co-op, but she has more evolved into, it, she calls it now Seed Seva. And since oh, COVID started, that's been online, S-E-V-A. Yeah, so, and Seva and the, and the Sikh tradition is to being of service. Right. Yeah. Well, here's the other thing I want to say about more in depth. If Here's what I suggest. What the world needs is a million new seed savers. At least. You know, to, just to start to, uh, you know, the more seed savers, the more diversity. And we need the diversity. We've got climate change coming and it's going to test every system we have. So as you want to learn your seed saving, teach it too. Become a yes. seed teacher. Yes. If you'll go to RockyMountainSeeds.org, on our website, there's a, a place, a, a, the menu heading called directories. And if you pull that down, you'll find one for seed teachers. And I think there's over 105 people that have signed up. You can fill out a form and it's all levels of experience. And what that'll do is you'll show up on our map as a seed teacher in that region. And so if other people want to learn and you can quit, yeah, we don't get involved. You can communicate with them. They can mm -hmm. say, well, do you know right. this and this and this? And you'll say, well, I don't know that, but I know this. And then maybe you can teach them a course. We're starting to see just in the last couple of years, seed schools spring up everywhere you know there's a nice. southern florida seed school there's one in the ozark there you know uh, petra is nailing down new york now with her with her seed schools you know so this is this is what we're doing we're learning this together and so you know otherwise if you really want to become a professional and and get involved with um, uh, seed production on an industrial level and even a smaller market farmer size or organic industrial mm -hmm. level. I know three university programs you could go to, and there may be more of those now. Every, things are evolving, but Oregon State University, Jim Meyer, you could go to University of Wisconsin, Madison, mm -hmm. or you can go to Cornell. Cornell, all of those, you know, all of them now are involved in, in biotech also. And, you know, the popular route is to learn about plants and genetics is from a biotechnical standpoint. Right. Point. But both of those do have programs in traditional plant breeding again, place-based. So Forrest wanted to know, uh, what was that site again? I just posted it in the chat box, but the site is? On my site? Yes. Or, yeah, yes, Rocky yes. Mountain Seeds. Dot org. Perfect. This is kind of an off-topic question. Hedge wants to know, how do I find a small family farm near other organic farmers to form pesticide plastic GMO exclusion zones? Yeah, there's um, some really great national organizations that have sprung up. If I were doing that search right now, I would um, start at the Young Farmers Coalition. Those guys are rocking it. 
Claudia says, and, yeah, where do we sign up for your million seed saver thing? Or is it figurative? No, it's uh, RockyMountainSeeds.org. You can, that's one of our programs right on the, if you just scroll down a little bit on the homepage, you'll see a thing for it. And we have, we have a form for you and we won't use your email or anything. The idea behind that was that a few years ago, they were doing million, millions against Monsanto marches. And there were like hundreds around the planet. And I decided I was not going to march against. Right that anymore and yeah. next time i go out in march i'm going to march for, for seed something. saving yep. right and so this million seed saver thing is this big audacious goal that someday we'll have this huge mailing list and we'll go yeah it's time we're go, we're marching and so that's what that's for nice elizabeth wants to know how is your best corn corn for tortillas coming along bill oh i love it it's you know one of those long-term projects but i had a good year you know, I learned something from Brett Baker, who longtime uh, grower from New Mexico, who actually did some of the original collections for the Native Seed Search collection in New Mexico years and years ago. And he spent mm-hmm. a lot of time around land-based and indigenous peoples. And he noticed that even in small backyard plots among indigenous peoples, they were, uh, they were able to save their own corn seed and get it to work year after year. And he couldn't figure out why, because it only looked like they had a hundred or so plants, you know, and that's not enough diversity. If you get into saving it all, you know, outcrossing crops like corn need. Well, when I was, uh, grow, you know, got into this, they said, oh, you need at least 200 plants. Mm-hmm. You know, Native Seed Search, when I got there, you know, their rule was 500 plants. That way you get enough diversity in the, in the crop to make sure that it maintains itself. And so what Brett figured out and first by looking then by asking is that in each of the hundred mounds mm-hmm. in say a small plot in someone's backyard where five to seven corn seeds were planted and they were actually three to five different plants. Mm-hmm. And so he what they were getting three to 500 different plants, but it all looked like a hundred plants. And he said, I don't think they get any more corn out of it than I would if I just put one seed in each hole. Mm-hmm. But I'm getting diversity. And once I learned yeah. that, man, my corn tortilla project's yeah. taken off because I got a pretty small space, but I got a lot more diversity last year. And so it's sort of uh, supercharging yeah. my effort. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, we are <laughs> done with questions so far. So, uh, oh, Tammy's on there. Well, welcome, Tammy. I joined watching Bill McDormand and Will Bonsall and others on the Seed the Untold Story. <laughs> yeah, that wow. was fun. Yeah. Bless you, Will. I hope you're doing well tonight. Deb wants to know what variety of corn you are growing for tortillas. Well, that was, can I tell a short story about that? Sure, absolutely. And then we'll wrap. When I was the director at Native Seed Search, I was in a a conservation meeting. And so we did these every once in a while. We had a PhD in in, uh, plant, actually a PhD in biology was ahead of our conservation department. And we were developing a database so that the accessions, they call them, those are variations even of varieties of, uh-huh. of the, in, in the native seed search permanent collection would be you know, properly cataloged so we can interface with the rest of the world and its computers and all this stuff. So we're in this meeting and I had a, a, a relatively new young farm employee in the meeting. And it's pretty heady stuff. And they're you know, talking about um, categories and how to categorize and the information or whatever. And, and my friend Evan raised his hand and said, and everybody kind of looked at him because he was new. It seemed like this conversation would be over his head. 
and Evan asked a question, we were talking about corn and Native Seeds has about 585 varieties of corn, many of which you what? can't find, find anywhere else. Oh yeah, from 55 tribes throughout the, it's a priceless Holy collection. Wow. So Evan raises his hand and goes, what corn of the 585 is best to make tortillas? Oh. <laughs> and it was like, you don't understand what we're doing here. You know, and the whole meeting kind of went back into a taxonomical science, you know, discussion and, and uh -huh. trying to get the, the work done, you know. But I listened to him. And after the meeting, I sort of winked at him and I said, Evan, let's find out. We don't have a lot of resources. He was living down at the farm. So he did research and he figured out there were probably 80 corns in, of the 585 that would probably be the best. Mm. You know, the kinds of corn that would be best for tortillas. And so he grew them out and made tortillas from many of them. And um, three years later, I saw him. He was making corn tortillas. And he said, I figured it out. I figured out what corn in the collection <laughs> was. was uh, in three years. Took him three years, which is wow. a phenomenally short time. Exactly. But he was, you know, pretty single-minded about it. It was Dia de San Juan, if you're interested. And so I used that corn. It's a white mm -hmm. corn, white flower corn from Mexico. I used that corn, and I crossed it with um, Carl Barnes Chickasaw which is a similar shape dent corn. Looks like it's great for tortillas, but it's every color in the rainbow. So I crossed that in. And then I have a neighbor here in Cornville for 20 years that's been growing his own uh, flower tortilla corn. Jesus, he's um, old school. Mm -hmm. And he's got a cow, he's got his chickens, he grows his corn every year, he makes his own tortillas, you know. And so he gave me some of his corn seed. And so I mixed all three and that's what I'm starting with to do my all tortilla right. corn. So apparently, uh, so I typed in Dia de San Juan corn in the search engine and Native Seed Search came up first. Well, that's the only place that will probably ever come up. Yeah. And I don't know if they even, you know, things in the collection come in and out of their offerings to the public, depending on what's going on there. So you'll ha just have to check, you know, but yeah, isn't that fun? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. All right. We got one more question. Then All we're right. going to wrap it up. Ed right. wants to know, will the seed, the seed threshers of old make a comeback? So, but what do you mean by seed threshers? You mean like machinery? Uh, good question. That's all we got. Well, let me tell you that everything of old is coming back to do with seeds is coming back. And yeah. that's uh, the reason for that is scale. We're scaling. So our agriculture got so big and we mm -hmm. kicked what 2 million farmers off. We didn't kick them, but we created a system that didn't need 2 million farmers, you know, from the thirties to the fifties. Right. Because farms got so big. I mean, in Montana, if you don't have 10,000 acres, you're not a farmer. Think about that. 10,000 acres. 10, so where's acres, all that wow. small family farm sized equipment, planting, harvesting, cleaning, threshing, mm -hmm. storing, all of that was for a family-sized scale agriculture that we just don't have anymore, but we want. And right. we're starting to regrow. And the millennials especially are starting to go back and do it. And the good, best restaurants in the country are realizing that the best food for their restaurants and the stories for it are coming from those that scale. And so there's game on for that kind yeah. of stuff. And in fact, Clippers which are the, was the premier seed cleaning machine a hundred years ago is still the premier and you can find them. If you know, look on Craigslist, there's a, I've heard there's a place in the Midwest that buys them and refurbishes them. <clears throat> we had two old ones when I was at native seed search. 
What are they or called? Or you can buy brand new ones. Clippers. Clipper. If you want to, if you want a small scale, <clears throat> medium scale seed cleaning equipment, that's the one name you should know. Clipper. I'm going to go get one because I want to start, you know, I, I collect seeds here, but it's so dang hard to, I have a, I have a huge, I have five gallon bucket of umbles from carrots right. in my front yard. Right. Whole thing's right. full, but it sticks in everything. And it's like, oh man. Yeah. Well, we should talk about it. And you may not have to buy one because we just had um, a small desktop one. And then the medium sized one that fits in a trailer donated to the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. Right. And uh, right. with, and the screens are as expensive if, to get a full set of screens and all the different shapes and sizes to do all the different kinds of seeds for these can uh -huh. be as expensive as the, as machine. the machine. Yeah. And so what we're trying to do is put it in a trailer and then uh, move it around in different regions because not cool you know tool. people are only going to use it for a few days every year. Yeah, right, exactly. So that way as a community we can move this stuff around until we can have it in our community again. So all right. Well, we're going to wrap this thing up. Thank you all for joining us. I just have one piece of trivia. You said 10,000 acres, right? Yeah. If you don't have 10,000 acres, that is 15.62 square miles. <laughs> Thank you once again, Bill. Always love having you. Wow. Um, yeah. Your website for Rocky Mountain Seed? RockyMountainSeeds.org. And Perfect. we uh, we do seed schools. We teach seed school um, uh, training. We give away all our information. Our, our goal is to put ourselves out of business. Yeah. We think our region should be able to produce all the seeds that it uses for and, lots, lots of reasons. And I know you believe that too, Greg. So, absolutely. And if and, you don't have a, a organization like that in your region, then start one and we'll help you start one <laughs> because everybody woo. needs one. Yeah, yeah exactly. And then uh, also uh, visit seedschoolonline.com for information on our uh, seed school that we give through Urban Farm U, which is taught by Bill McDormand. Hey, thanks, everybody. So, this has been yeah. great. You bet. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, everybody. Right. We appreciate you. We'll catch Thank you next month. All right. Bye. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule, and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.